Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Remember. All right, so last week we began our study in the epistle of Jude. It's a little fiery letter <laughs> written by one of Jesus' little fiery brothers, little half-brother. So by the time Jude wrote this epistle, we think somewhere between AD 68 and AD 70, maybe a little later than that, False teachers at this time in history had already begun to infiltrate the churches, and this made Jude mad. He got upset, and so what did he do? He changed the topic of his letter. He changed what he was gonna write about and instead wrote about fighting for the faith. And so by way of review, let's just read verse three. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, the inference here is I changed the subject, <laughs> I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, <laughs> fight, fight for the faith that was once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints, all right? So what was the purpose, or what is the purpose of Jude? Well, Jude wrote this letter, to exhort Christians to contend for the faith. Ladies and gentlemen, if you love the faith, if you love the faith that was once for all delivered in this first century by Jesus to his apostles and their associates, recorded in the New Testament, we have the faith right here. If you love the faith, what I know is that you're gonna get to know the faith and you're gonna fight for it. Now why is this important? Look at verse four. Right now, if you're looking at Jude verse four, can you say amen? Okay, look at this. Why is it important to fight for the faith? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Christ, and so it's important to contend for the faith because Jude says it's under constant attack by false teachers, and so Jude wanted to expose those false teachers, so what he's gonna do in his little fiery letter is he's gonna give us many distinguishing marks so that we can spot a false teacher. He did it for the first century Christians, and guess what? The distinguishing marks of a false teacher haven't changed over 2,000 years, and so we can use these marks as well to spot false teachers in our day. All right, so let's get right into it. The first mark of a false teacher, if you're taking notes, is that they are deceptive. They're deceptive. We find that in the very first few words of verse four. Please look at verse four again. For certain People have crept in unnoticed. All right, so in the first century, ladies and gentlemen, in the first century, these false teachers didn't come into these churches carrying signs saying, beware, we're false teachers. No, just the opposite. They probably smiled really big, and they said all the right things, and they won the trust of the people. And then they brought in, according to Peter in 2 Peter, then they brought in their destructive heresies. The word heresy simply means false doctrine. And my question is, where were the pastors? 
The pastor is a shepherd, and a shepherd is called to guard the sheep. All right, and so I wonder, did these first century pastors check out these guys before allowing them to have a platform to speak to the people? And there's a lesson for us in all of this. And the lesson is that pastors and elders in every single local church, they're called to thoroughly check out potential leaders before giving them a platform to speak. And if pastors and elders miss something, which sometimes they do, it's up to the body to let the leadership know if somebody's teaching something weird. And so what a potential leader believes needs to be checked out. And what a potential, or how a potential leader lives, not just in their public life, but their private life, how they live needs to be checked out, which leads you to your next point, second mark of a false teacher, not only are they deceptive, a lot of these guys, ladies and gentlemen, in their private lives, they're immoral. They're immoral. They're living two different lives. You say, where do you get that from? Verse four. It says in verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated, that's an interesting word, designated is prographo in the Greek. It speaks of their past written Judgment. In other words, the judgment of these false teachers was written about in the Old Testament. Okay, so they were designated for this condemnation, but what about their immoral lives? Here it is. Ungodly people, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And so in the first century, there was this heresy that surfaced called incipient Gnosticism. All right, incipient means in the initial stages of, and Gnosticism was a first century cult that continued on, I think, for the first three centuries of the early church, but it was a cult of people so-called in the know, Gnostics. Um, they supposedly had this higher knowledge about God. You know, they were the elite. They had a lot of weird teachings. I don't have time to get into all of it today, so like I normally do, I'll give you an article uh, that you can read more about these guys at Got questions.org, if you type in what is Christian Gnosticism, you'll see a great article that exposes the false teachings of Gnosticism, and that article will show you that these guys were anything but Christians, all right? So one of their main tenets was that the material realm is evil, but the spiritual realm is good. Matter is evil, but the spirit is good. In other words, your body, my body, our bodies are evil. There's nothing we can do about it. But that inside spiritual part of us, that's good. And so what does that have to do with false teachers in Jude's day that were perverting God's grace? Well, theologian Millard Erickson tells us right here. Some Gnostics concluded that what is done with the body is spiritually irrelevant, right? How convenient is that? What is done in your body is spiritually irrelevant and hence they engaged in licentious or immoral behavior. And so a false teacher would come up on the scene and they would say something like this, hey man, are you struggling with sexual sin? 
Are you struggling with sensuality? Stop struggling, just give in, right? What you do in your body doesn't matter. Your body's evil, that's always gonna, look, look, the true you is the spiritual part of you. Just focus on your spirit. God's a God of grace. Now, it's true, God's a God of grace, but everything else they said is a lie. And the Apostle Paul, like he always does, sets the record straight. So what's the truth? Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart, to be holy. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in the Greek is pornea, from where we get our, our English word porn, pornography. Look at this, that each of you know how to do whatever you wanna do in your body, is that what it says? No, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. And so there's a lesson for us in this. Instead of perverting God's grace, um, instead of reinterpreting God's grace, right, as an excuse for us to live sensual lives, just the opposite of that, we need to view God's grace like a two-sided coin. All right, so if this coin right here represents grace, you need to know that it has two sides. One side is forgiveness, and the other side is power. God in his grace gives us forgiveness, right? John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we turn from our sin and we confess our sins to the Lord, he's promised us he's gonna forgive our sins, washed in the blood, he's gonna restore fellowship. Jesus is gonna restore fellowship between us and our Father in heaven. How many of you guys are glad for that side of the coin, right? That's good news. We have unconditional forgiveness when we uh, repent, but grace has another side. <laughs> it's power when we surrender, power to live a holy life. And so not only does God in his grace give us forgiveness, he also in his grace gives us power so that we can control our bodies and live in a way that honors him, live in a way that is Holy, and ladies and gentlemen, we gotta emphasize both sides of the coin in the church. We can't just emphasize one side of the coin, we gotta emphasize both. God is calling us to live holy lives. Peter said, be holy for I am holy. And some people say, well I don't do that stuff, I just watch it on TV or on, or on my computer. It's not right. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will convict your soul and you would turn away from that. The third mark of a false teacher is not only are they deceptive, not only are they immoral, but of course, <laughs> they're prideful. And so, look at the end of verse four. So, it says at the end of verse four that these false teachers deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Master and Lord. And so the word master in the Greek simply means sovereign ruler. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ is 
our sovereign ruler, right? Do you believe that this morning? Right, sovereign ruler, and he's Lord. <laughs> he's the boss. It's a title of honor. But these false teachers and their pride said, no, 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 no. You know, they deny the fact that Jesus is the sovereign ruler and should be honored and worshiped. They come up with all these crazy doctrines about the person of Christ. They deny the fact that he's fully God and fully man. They'd rather honor themselves. They'd rather point to themselves. It's all about their little list of teachings, right? And there's a lesson for us in this. And the lesson is that we gotta be different. We, ladies and gentlemen, we need to surrender everything to the Lord and our master, Jesus Christ. We need to surrender our lives, we need to surrender our will, we need to surrender our desires, we need to surrender our agenda, we need to surrender, complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason some Christians don't go that far, right, is because they think that God's gonna call them to Timbuktu and they're gonna starve to death. But what you don't realize is that God is a good father and his plan for your life is better than your plan for your own life. And so just surrender to him and live life the way God wants you to live your life. False teachers are deceptive. That means they creep in unnoticed. They're immoral. Their private life completely different than their public hypocrisy. And then they're prideful. They're not willing to accept the fact with their lips and their lives that Jesus is Lord. Jude, in this little fiery letter, he's gonna give so many more distinguishing marks of how to spot a false teacher. But right now, in verses five through seven, the Holy Spirit wants to remind us of something. In verses five through seven, the Holy Spirit wants us to remember. He wants us to remember three groups from the past that departed from the truth and he wants us to remember the consequences because how many of you guys know we reap what we sow? So he wants us to remember the consequences of what happened to these three groups as a result of their apostasy. The word apostasy means simply to depart from the truth, depart from the faith, all right? And so the first group that we have to remember is faithless Israel, faithless Israel. Israel, please look at verse five. He says, now I want to remind you, remember something here, that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, some of your translations, Lord, which there's no discrepancy there, there Jesus is Lord, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So after the Lord, right, led his people out of Egypt, eventually they made it, right, just to the south border of the promised land, the land of Canaan, a little town called Kadesh Barnea. Maybe you remember this story from the book of Numbers. And they're there, and it's called the promised land because God promised to give it to them. And so when God promises you something, all you gotta do is take that step of faith and take what God has promised to give you. That's all they had to do. And so Moses sends in the 12 spies. 
The 12 spies go out throughout the land. They're hiding behind trees. They're hiding behind rocks. They're taking mental notes of everything that they see, and it's a beautiful land. It truly is. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they're done. After 40 days, they come back to Kadesh Barnea to the camp of the children of Israel. And they report in. You guys remember this from Sunday school, right? And so two of the spies, men of faith, Joshua and Caleb, they give the people a good report. They're like, let's go. Let's take the land. With God's help, we can. Can you guys say the words, we can? Go ahead. We can. We can. Why? Because God promised. We can. Let's do it, people. Let's go. But then 10 other spies were like, no, no, no. Don't listen to those guys. We can't. <laughs> We can't do this, we're not able. This is a land that devours its inhabitants and there's giants in the land and we look like little grasshoppers in their sight. And so guess who the children of Israel listened to? The two or the 10? The 10, the 10. The fear-filled report. They listened to that report. Ah, right, and thousands of people began to weep openly and cry out, why has God brought us out here? So we can fall by the sword, our wives and our kids are gonna die. Hey, let's pick a new leader and let's return to Egypt. And I want you to look at what God said to Moses here. Look at this. How long do I gotta put up with this? That's in the original Hebrew. How long? How long will this people despise me? Do you know why they're despising the Lord? Because it's the promised land. He promised to give it to them. All they had to do was take a step of faith and take it. But instead, they gave in to fear. They were dominated by their fear. And he said, how long are they gonna despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done for them? My goodness, how many signs had God done for these people up to this point? He sent 10 supernatural plagues upon Egypt. He opened the Red Sea. What more do you want? He opened the Red Sea so that they could escape from the Egyptian army. When they're thirsty, he turns bitter water into sweet water, drink when they're hungry, he gives them manna from heaven. Every single morning, it's there. They can eat. They can satisfy their hunger. At night, he leads them around with a pillar of fire. During the day, he leads them around with a, a pillar of cloud. What more did God have to do? And so this is what they should have done. Instead of giving in to fear, they should have looked at their past and all the times that God had shown up and they should allow that to infuse them with faith so that they can take a step of faith and embrace everything God had for them in the future. But instead of that, they gave in to fear. They gave in to fear, ladies and gentlemen. Don't let fear dominate your life. And so they should have gotten behind their leader, Moses. They should have marched victoriously into the promised land. But instead of that, they focused on the problem. Focused on the problem. There's giants in the land. And they lost all confidence. 
What did Joshua and Caleb focus on? Let me ask you this question, you can answer out loud. Do you think Joshua and Caleb, as they're hiding behind trees and rocks and spying out the land, do you think Joshua and Caleb saw those giants, yes or no? Yes. But do you know what they did? They made a choice, ladies and gentlemen. It's a choice. They made a choice not to focus on the giants. They made a, fo- a, a choice to focus on Jehovah, Amen. who's so much bigger than the giants. Yeah. They decided, I'm gonna focus on Yahweh, God, the Lord, God. And, 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 and imagine, God is so big, right? And these little sons of Anak, these little giants, compared to God, they're like little ants, and God can just step on them with his pinky toe, and they're gone. That's the focus that Joshua and Caleb had on the Lord God. That's where our focus needs to be as well. Not on any problem, but on the Lord. But the children of Israel exchanged faith for fear, and they paid the consequences. It says in the end of verse five, please look at it, afterward the Lord destroyed those who did not believe. So because they made a choice not to trust God and move forward in faith, God turned them around. God's like, all right, have it your way. He turned them around and they wandered around in circles for almost 40 years in the wilderness. And everybody 20 years old and older eventually died in the wilderness. They never took possession of the promised land. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a lesson for us in this. And the lesson for us is stop letting fear dominate your life. And move, if God has made a promise to you, either through his word or through the clear leading of the Holy Spirit confirmed by a pastor or elder or a spiritual mentor, if God has made a promise to you, you've got to trust God and move forward no matter how daunting it seems, no matter how difficult it seems, you got to just go for it. And if you'll go for it, God will show up. Remember Peter, as he stepped out of the boat on that stormy night, As long as he kept his focus on the Savior, he did great things. It's called walking on water. But as soon as he took his focus off the Savior and on the storm, what happened to Peter? He began to what? He began to sink. Same thing's gonna happen in our lives. I don't want anybody within the sound of my voice to wander around in life in the wilderness. I want you to take possession of God's perfect will for your life, but that is gonna mean you gotta exercise faith, even though it seems really, really hard. The second group we gotta remember is the fallen angels. The fallen angels. Here's where it gets a little bizarre, so put your seat belts on, please. If you're looking at verse six, please say amen. All right, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, right? They left the spiritual realm for the physical realm. He, the Lord, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. All right, and so at some point in the distant, as I set this all up, some point in the distant past, no one knows when, right? You guys know this. Um, a third of the angels, a third of the angels got behind the anointed cherub Lucifer and they attempted a coup d'etat against the Lord 
Now that's just dumb, number one. But they rebelled against the Lord and so they got the boot. Lucifer, we know him as Satan. Fallen angels, we know them as demons. They get kicked out of heaven and guess where they come? They come to planet Earth. They're coming, they, they came to wreak as much havoc as possible on our planet, right? If you can't destroy the Lord, then we'll go after the people that the Lord creates. And so, and by the way, since the fall of man, demonic beings have caused untold misery for our human race. But one of the worst crimes they ever committed has been, has been recorded for us in Genesis chapter six. So hold your place in Jude and take a left all the way to the first book of the Bible. Let's look at Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six, and we'll start in verse one. It says, when man, so this is right before the flood, by the way, and this is one of the big reasons for the flood. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to him, to them, the sons of God, Right, that phrase in the Hebrew, sons of God, you see that same exact phrase three times in the book of Job, and all three times it's referring to angels. Angels. Now, um, the Septuagint. How many of you guys ever heard of the Septuagint? Raise your hand. All right, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, 250 BC, scholars got together, they interpreted, I'm sorry, they translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek, the Septuagint, LXX, if you're ever seeing LXX and you're studying, um, that was the Bible of the apostles, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. The Septuagint, in verse two, Genesis chapter six, verse two, it actually says, the angels. The sons of God, the angels, saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, mighty men, giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God, same phrase, angels, when the angels, and by the way, it's not the godly line of Seth, and I'll, I'll, sh I'll show you why here in a little while, but when the angels came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So concerning this bizarre passage, as you turn back to Jude, Chuck Swindoll says this, Jude 6 likely refers to the events of Genesis 6 when fallen angels, demons, somehow entered the physical realm and cohabitated with women on the earth. The result of this exceptionally immoral and unnatural union was a race of mighty men called the Nephilim. And so the way that these fallen angels um, most likely entered the physical realm was through demonic possession. And so these demons 
possessed certain wicked men who had sexual relations with certain women and the result were the Nephilim, the mighty men, the giants. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you read verse seven in Jude, right? Because you can't just take verses out of context. You gotta interpret verses within their context. When you read verse seven of Jude, there's no doubt that these fallen angels had sexual relations with women. All right, so let's read verses six and seven and get the flow here so you see this. And so verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he, the Lord, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Look at verse seven. Just as, see how seven is linked with six. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, like what? Like the angels in verse six which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. All right, so what was the consequence of all this? The Lord, it says, punished those demons by putting them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, where, and that's where they are right now, until the great day of judgment. In other words, they, what they did in Genesis six was so heinous, it was so wrong, the Lord's like, I can never let them do this again, and so he took a certain number of these demons that did this, and by the way, there's other demons that are still roaming through the earth right now, but he took these guys and he restrained them so they could never do anything like that again. Peter described their judgment like this, look at this. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, Tartaro, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, that word Tartaro in the Greek is very interesting. It's the only time it ever appears in the, in the New Testament. It's so interesting to me because most of our English translations translated Tartaro as hell. But Peter, when Peter was describing the doom of these demons, he did not use the, the usual New Testament Greek word for hell. He didn't use the word Hades. He didn't even use the word Gehenna. He used the word, he borrowed a word from Greek culture called Tartaru, which means Tartarus. It was understood by the ancient Greeks as a place that's lower than Hades, kind of like a lockbox. And so it's a place that Peter and Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says is a place of gloomy darkness. And so I believe, and now this is my opinion, okay, so I wanna differentiate between Bible teaching and my opinion, but I believe that Tartarus is one and the same with the abyss or the bottomless pit, talked about in Luke chapter eight, and seven times in the book of Revelation, the bottomless pit, the abyss, all right? So in Luke eight, when Jesus gets out of the boat in the land of the Gerasenes, and he walks up, and he sees the man who's been living among the tombs cutting himself, right? And he sees this guy, his demon possessed. Anybody remember this story? He confronts, pure holiness confronts evil. And the legion within this man, the many demons within this man, began to cry out and beg the Lord not to send them into the abyss. 
Why? Because they're scared of death and they know that the Lord has the power because he already did it to some of their angelic colleagues way back in Genesis 6 when they committed a heinous crime and cohabitated with women and they're like screaming, don't send us into the abyss, don't send us into the abyss, send us into the, the, the pigs. So Jesus is a kosher Jew, he doesn't really like pork, right? So what does he do? Well, go ahead, right? The, the, power of the Lord's word is amazing. And many demons come out of this guy, go into the pigs, they run down the cliff, steep cliff, fall into the Sea of Galilee and the pigs drown. And I'm not gonna say anything about those bad jokes like suicide or deviled ham floating or whatever. But if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to that place that's a steep place around the Sea of Galilee, and we'll have some fun with this text, but on a more serious note, all right, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the progression that's downward for these angels. Look at verse six again. And the angels who did not stay within their own proper position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, the Lord has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the Judgment of the great day. And so everybody look at me, please. Do you know where they used to be? The presence of God and freedom, worshiping the Lord. That's where they used to be. But then after their fall, they got booted out of heaven and this heinous act in Genesis chapter six, now all of a sudden, they're, they're under gloomy darkness in eternal chains and they're waiting for the day of judgment. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. In other words, they went from freedom in heavenly bliss to bondage in the abyss. And it all started when they started listening to a false teacher. It all started when they started listening to the first apostate, Lucifer, who went around to a third of the angels and told them lies about God. And so there's a lesson for us in this. What's the lesson? Don't listen to false teachers. They'll steer you wrong. They're gonna tell you lies about God and you can't listen to them. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You gotta fall in love with this faith that Jesus gave to the apostles and the associates that's recorded in the New Testament. You gotta know it. You gotta have this discerning spirit so that when you see a false teacher, that guy's not right, and you know it, because you've been in the scriptures and you have the indwelling uh, presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, because if you listen to a false teacher, there always is gonna be a downward progression in your life. Third and final group that we have to remember is the men of Sodom. And as we go verse by verse, we can't skip anything. Verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality, and pursued what kind of desire? Unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
So Jude now points to an account in Genesis 19 in that true story, God sent two angels that took on the appearance of men, interesting. He sent them to Sodom and Gomorrah. These two angels walked up to the city gate and there's a guy named Lot. Very interesting, Peter in the New Testament calls him a righteous man. That's a different sermon of how some Christians, it's so sad, they become carnal. But Lot is there, some kind of political leader in Sodom and he greets these men and it's getting late. He's like, hey, you know, come spend the night at my house. They're like, that's okay, we'll, we'll sleep out on the courtyard. And he's like, not in this city, come to my house. And they went into his house and somebody must have saw it because later that night, there's a knock on Lot's door and Lot opens it up and he sees the men of Sodom outside his house. And they said, and I quote Genesis 19, five, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot tried to reason with these guys. And I don't know if it was insanity, I don't know if it was carnality. He offers his daughters to them. How do you do that? But they weren't interested in women. They wanted the men. So Lot's trying to reason with these guys, right? But the more he tried to reason, the more violent they became. And now they're pressing against Lot and they're trying to break through the door and the angels step in and they strike all the men of Sodom, small and great, that were outside Lot's house with blindness. And the angel said to Lot, if you got any family in the town, get them out. Judgment is coming. And sure enough, the very next morning, the Lord the Lord showered down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying everything in sight. Ladies and gentlemen, that was an example of militant, in-your-face, aggressive homosexuality. But even when homosexuality isn't militant or in-your-face or aggressive, it's still sinful. God's view of homosexuality is clear in the Bible. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Somebody says, well, well, that's, that's the law. We're under grace. You don't understand. That's the moral law of God, and it never changes no matter what dispensation you're living in. And it's upheld by the New Testament because Paul calls out homosexual behavior, women with women, men with men, in Romans 1, 26 through 27, he calls out homosexual behavior in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11, and then he also says that those who practice homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 will not inherit the kingdom of God. We don't change the Bible, we change ourselves. Now, God has given boundaries for sex. What's the boundaries? Marriage. <laughs> let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. And so if you're here today and, and you're having sex as a single person outside of marriage, or you're married and you're cheating on your spouse, committing adultery, please don't 
shake your finger at homosexuals and say, you're such sinners. No, you're just as guilty before God. It's all wrong outside of the boundaries that God has put in place. And again, his will is always better than our will. What's God's will for sex? One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. And can you imagine what would this world look like if everybody conformed to God's standard? What an amazing, amazing thing would happen. Listen, all sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, would be abolished. Women would be honored instead of dishonored. Families would be strengthened, right? Because mom and dad, man, we're gonna stay together. We're gonna work this out. We're going to love one another. And then what happens is that children are raised in stable and solid homes and they got a chance in life. God's plan is an awesome plan. We don't change the Bible, we change ourselves.